In the 27th Psalm, I'm just going to read the first uh, verse, and then we will look at it as we proceed, the entire psalm. The opening verse, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Recently, uh, my little girl, the three-year-old Peggy, was going from one half part of the house to another part, and uh, she uh, wanted me to go with her. And I didn't want to go with her, and uh, I was busy, and she insisted that I go with her. And I asked why, and as I delved a little bit, she was afraid to go to this other portion of the house by herself. And, uh, and I uh, tried to find out what she was afraid of, what was going to get her. And uh, as it turned out, uh, pelicans. <laughs> now, uh, <clears throat> you may feel that's uh, irrational fear, uh, but no more irrational than many of our fears as uh, older than three-year-olds. Uh, a recent survey taken in Britain <clears throat> showed that 24 out of 25 people had Irrational fears, fears that to other people uh, were foolish. Uh, for instance, one out of ten was afraid of the dark. Uh, one out of four was afraid of animals, particularly little bitty animals like mice. One out of five were afraid of heights or space or water or closed rooms. Four out of five had other obsessions such as a fear of failure or humiliation or ridicule, a, feeling, a sense of inadequacy. Um, there are some 75 phobias listed in the dictionary when you go to see all the things that men are afraid of. And apparently, uh, most of us are somewhat like the father who was approached by his little girl, and she said, Daddy, are you afraid of cows? He said, No, I'm not afraid of cows. She said, Well, are you afraid of woolly worms? He said, uh, No, I'm not afraid of woolly worms. She said, Well, Daddy, you just... You're not afraid of anything, but Mom, are you? <laughs> Which brings home that there's such a thing as a healthy fear. Uh, there is such a thing as healthy fear, sure enough. The fear of God is a healthy fear. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're told in the Bible. Uh, you remember when the two thieves are on the cross... Uh, on each side of Jesus, and uh, one thief has a change of heart and attitude in this extreme situation, and uh, the other thief continues to revile Christ and to mock him. And this thief, uh, who has had the change of heart, cries out and says, Dost thou not fear God to the other thief? Uh, are you so foolhardy that in the situation you're in, you're going to continue in your rebellion against God and man? Uh, there is such a thing as a healthy fear. And one healthy fear is a fear of God. Uh, a reverential awe, but a real respect for the fact that God is not to be trifled with. Uh, but the thing that uh, we're concerned with particularly today is irrational fear. Fears that are unworthy of a Christian. And we're talking in terms of a Christian. A Christian should not fear where other men do fear. A Christian uh, knows certain things and has certain things going for him, so to speak, that other men don't have. And in this <clears throat> uh, 
27th Psalm, we have the personal testimony of a man who's learned how to deal with fear in the light of his faith. David gives his personal testimony about this. And as you read this psalm, you find that his fears are very well founded. They're not irrational uh, in the sense that uh, he's overestimating what could happen to him. If we know anything of the life of David, we know that a great deal of his life was spent in imminent danger. He was pursued by Saul. He uh, was uh, continually facing danger after danger from his enemies. His son rebelled against him. Uh, There were plots on his life and so on. Uh, He had a very real danger, and he shows us here how he deals with this fear. We find him first talking to himself. He starts out by talking to himself, preaching to himself, if you will, and reminding himself of certain facts that uh, throw a fresh light on the situation that he's in. The first thing that he reminds himself of is the relationship that he is in with God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life or is the stronghold or the fortress of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice what he says about this relationship. He says, number one, it's a powerful relationship, a relationship that's full of power. I'm related to the Lord, the Lord, the one who created the universe, the one who controls it, the one who has all power. Uh, He reminds himself of the relationship that he has with God and of the fact of who God is. He contemplates just what God is like. Uh, The Bible is filled with passages that would bring before our mind's eye what God is like. For instance, in Isaiah 45, in verse 5 through 7, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light. And create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. He's not the author of evil, but while he doesn't, in a sense, instigate it, he overrules it and he controls it and he uses it. Uh, he, in this particular passage, is speaking of the fact that he would raise up Cyrus, the Assyrian, and would send him as a scourge to punish his nation. Israel. He would use this evil man for his own purposes, in a sense. Now, uh, there are many, many passages in Scripture that deal with this aspect of what God is. Another one is the 119th Psalm, and the last part of it speaks of God's faithfulness. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances. Nature continues to function because you continue to control it. You haven't wound it up and given it a shove, and it's running on its own. You cause the grass to grow. You cause the calves to... the uh, 
cows to have calves and so on. You control everything. It's not uh, accidental. For all are thy servants. All. Everything is under your control and serves you. Some against their will, some according to their will. But they all are under your control. Hannah Whitehall Smith, who is a well-known Christian writer and a blessing to many, in her little book, Everyday Religion, brings out the implications of this statement, all are God's servants. Um, She says, his care of us as Christians, if we belong to him, is more watchful and more tender than the care of any human father possibly could be. A little further on in this 27th Psalm, David says, When my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. He is closer and nearer and dearer and more faithful than the closest earthly time. And she goes on to say, From these scriptures and many more, had we time to quote them, it is perfectly plain that all things, whether kings or nations or light or darkness or peace or evil or the earth or the hosts of heaven, or liars or diviners or cities or rivers, or heathen generals, all are under his control, and all must accomplish his will. And this God is our Father, if we are believers in Jesus Christ. Repeat the words over and over again, she says. Get that into your thinking. This God, whom all things must serve, whether they know him or not, is our Father. Can we conceive of a good father or a mother allowing their servants to injure their children? Do we know of any good parents who do not make their servants serve their children? Then our heavenly father's servants must as surely serve us as the servants of our earthly fathers do. And since all things are God's servants, all things are therefore our servants as well, if we're Christians. She quotes from 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, Therefore, let no man glory in men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Death is something that serves you if you're a Christian. You can count it in your bag of treasures. Or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. David reflects on that. He reflects on this powerful relationship. He reflects on the fact that it's a personal relationship. The Lord is my light and my salvation. There's no question in David's mind whether there is a relationship between him and the Lord, whether he belongs to the Lord, whether he is a Christian, if you want to put it that way. He knows whom he has believed, and he's persuaded that he is related to him. And that is just normal Christianity. There's no question mark when you come to the New Testament about whether or not a man belongs to Christ. He knows whether he belongs to Christ. This is almost part and parcel of being a Christian, is that assurance. Now, uh, this is an essential foundation of bringing faith to bear on our fears through the concept of our relationship with our Heavenly Father, is knowing that He is my Father. And then there is the fact that it's a present relationship. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation, not was, not will be. He is right now. My Father, my salvation. I have a present relationship with him. And this then pervades everything. Whom then shall I fear? Or as it's put in Romans 8 by Paul, if God be for us, and God is for every Christian, if God be for us, who can stand against us? That's exactly what uh, David's saying here. Whom shall I fear? What shall I fear? Nothing. Uh, the logic is overwhelming. Christ appeals to this logic when he sends his disciples out. In Matthew 10, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's going to be rugged. All men are going to hate you. You really live the life. You go out and tell them about me, and you're going to produce a reaction. Sheep in the midst of wolves. But I'm sending you out because... I'm controlling it. Fear not those who harm the body. Don't be afraid. Why not, Lord? Because not a sparrow falls without your heavenly Father. That is to say, nothing takes place without my permission, down to the most minute thing. And to even drive it further home, he says, the hairs of your head are all numbered. I'm keeping up with you. And nothing can touch you without my express permission. And if I permit it, it's for your good, because I love you. Paul says, all things work together for good. God works all things together for good. To them that love him, to them that are the called according to his purpose, to every Christian, is what that means. Paul, uh, David reflects along these lines initially. This is how he goes about counteracting his fear. He reflects on the relationship that he has with the controller of all things. And then he recalls what God's done in the past. As he says in the second verse, When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came up against me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. In the past, you have protected me and you have shown your hand with me. And then he makes a resolution. In the third verse, in the light of these things, God's past dealings and his present relationship, he makes a resolution. He says, though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. I'm not going to let myself be afraid. Though war should rise up against me, in this, even in such a situation, I will be confident in my God. This is... An act of his will, he resolves to do this. Uh, you begin to pick up some feeling of, of how we deal with this thing. And of the cause of fear. The cause of fear is unbelief. You remember when the disciples were in the boat with the Lord and the boat was sinking... And they go to him and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They said, Master, the boat's sinking. Help! <laughs> and uh, you know what he said? He said, you have no right to act that way. Now, if they had no right to act that way in that situation, and we can't imagine a more 
dire situation, then we have no right to panic or to fear in any situation we can get into as Christians. We have no right to fear as long as we are in this relationship and so on. Uh, Christ rebukes him. He says, Wherefore didst thou doubt? Why don't you believe? Wherefore didst thou doubt, O ye of little faith? He says, My followers have no right to be in such a state, even though they are in apparent jeopardy. You pick up something of the fact that the Christian life is a life where our faith will be tested. And yet, uh, you also pick up something of the nature of faith. Faith is made up of knowledge and will. There is an element of knowledge. It's a response to truth. We remind ourselves of things that we know about this relationship, that it is a power-filled relationship, that it is a personal relationship, it is a present relationship, it pervades everything in the world. We remind ourselves of that. That's knowledge that we bring to bear. We have to sit there and remind, send it back through. We have a tendency to forget. And then we, in the light of these great facts and promises of God, we exercise our will as a volitional element. And we say, I will not doubt. I will refuse to panic. Faith is a refusal to panic in the light of certain facts that I'm assured of. That's a refusal to exercise the liberty. I don't have a right to fear as a Christian. And it's a continuing thing. Faith must continually put down rising unbelief, rising fear. It's a walk like Peter walked on the water by keeping his eyes on the Lord. Now notice the roots. That's his resolution. Notice the roots of his faith. You notice that... He had a faith, and his problem was to bring the faith to bear on the situation that he was in. And that's what he's doing here. But how did he get the faith? How was he able to have this faith to bring to bear, this confidence to apply in this situation? This goes back to his pattern of life. He says in verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. This has been the continued uh, approach to life that I've followed, and it is what I will continue. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Dwelling in the house of the Lord here means being a member of the household and being in intimate communion with God. I have sought fellowship with God continually. This has been my goal in life. A continuing, growing fellowship with God. And I intend to follow that same pattern of life. Here's the root of the faith that David had and was able to bring to bear on the situation. The New Testament statement about how to, how to have communion with God is that we are to abide in Jesus Christ. And Christ spells out what it means to abide in him. He says that, We are to continually rely on him, constantly be in dependence on him. Second, we are to continually uh, retain his word. He says, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, constantly being in his word. Uh, 
so that our concept of God and of our relationship to him is all that it should be. Constantly relinquishing our will to God's will. Over and over in that abiding chapter of John, the 15th chapter, he says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Constantly relinquishing our will to his will in every area of life. And then constantly requesting, being in prayer, as he says, ye shall ask what ye will in that same passage. This had been David's pattern. David had abided. David had been in God's word and been in meditation and been in prayer and been relinquishing his will. And therefore his faith was strong and he brings his faith to bear on this situation. The results, as he follows this pattern, look at the confidence that develops. In verse 5, in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. I don't need to be afraid. And the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing right now, even while he's still in the problem, still surrounded by the situation. He says, I know I'm safe. I know God is going to act for my salvation in this situation. My enemies will be overcome and I will be lifted up. And right now I'll praise him and thank him for it and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. The result uh, is the confidence that develops. We must learn to talk to ourselves like he did if we're to deal with our fears. But notice what he then does. He then begins to talk to God. You get a change, it seems, in moods as you come on along. In verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me, and answer me. And in uh, verse 9, Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not. Neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. He's crying out to God for help in this situation. Now, this could be a change of mood. In dealing with our fears, we are continually changing moods. Even when we, we reflect on these things and confidence builds up, then we get our eyes back on the waves and get them off the Lord and we begin to fear again. And then we have to go through the pattern again. And it could be that he's got his eyes off the Lord and got them on the waves now. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case. You see, just because he's calling out to God in prayer for help doesn't mean that he's got his eyes back on the waves. We put our trust in God, but we also use the means that he has said that we are to employ to bring him into play in the situation. We ask for help. Ask is always the rule of the kingdom. Ask and you shall receive. You have not because you ask not. David asked for help in the situation. Specific prayer about it. If that was not the rule of the kingdom, if God didn't put it down, our attitude toward God would become what I accuse my little girl of having as an attitude toward me. She comes trotting in and she says, Daddy, put on my shoes. Then she says, Daddy, ride me on your shoulder. Daddy, do this and Daddy, do this. And I said, uh, what are daddies for? She said, to tie a little girl's shoes and to ride them on his shoulder. Well, you see, uh, if, uh, if just everything goes automatically, if God didn't require us to ask and then he granted sometimes and sometimes he didn't, 
there would be no appreciation that that's not just what God is for, that he is being gracious. There would be no discerning of his hand when he does move. We would think we did it ourselves if we didn't ask and then receive. So that's the purpose that God has of requiring us to ask. Notice the pattern of asking. As you follow along here, he has a request and then he has a reason why God should grant the request. He says, God help me, and then he says, the reason you should do this is because when you said, seek my face, I sought your face. I've been obedient. That's one reason. We read in the New Testament that we know that God will answer our prayers because we keep his commandments. Uh, Obedience, he urges. And then he goes on to urge, uh, God should help because of the relationship. God, you're faithful. When my father and mother forsake me, you will take me up, and so on. In other words, he's got petition. And then praying ground. Petition and then praying ground. And you need praying ground. If you're not on praying ground, it's hard to urge home a petition, isn't it? It's hard to go to the Lord and say, Lord, uh, you know, I, I really need help. And you know, I've really been doing what you, well, I really haven't been doing what you wanted me to, but I still need help, you see. You need to be on praying ground when you begin approaching not just uh, in the sense of urging the petition home, but in the sense of having any confidence, any faith that he will answer. And this is the way he proceeds. And having talked to God, he then talks to others. As he says in the 13th verse, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He said, let me tell you something. If you're going to get through life, you need faith. I'd have never made it. I would have fainted. I'd have given up and been overcome by my fears and my enemies if I hadn't believed God, that he was going to be with me and he was going to help me. And he says, you not only need faith, you need patience. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Trust him. He will come through and he won't be late. In his time and in the right time, he will answer. This is his testimony to us. How do you handle fear as a Christian? Well, uh, first of all, you face it. You don't stick your head in the sand. You don't say, surely that could never happen to me. Oh, yes, it could. Oh, yes, it could. You look it right in the face and you say, that thing is just as bad as it looks. If you won't look it in the face, then you're going to fear it twice as much. And some trouble really faces you, just say, well, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? And analyze it. Look that right in the face. And you know, as you look it right in the face, it'll begin to get smaller. If you hide it and refuse to look at it, it'll get bigger and bigger. Dr. Bradley Fulkerson, uh, when he first discovered that he had cancer of the lung, called me up and he was very upset and fearful, naturally, but wrongly. And so we, I was going to Tuscaloosa. I said, Brad, come on and drive with me and we'll talk. And so he did. And as we went along, all we did, we just uh, reviewed his relationship with God. You've become a Christian. Yes. You know that. Yes. You've seen his hand in your life. Yes. What does that mean? Uh, what's the worst possible thing could happen to you? A painful death? All right. Is that so bad? Let's look and see. What does the Bible say about death? We looked at passages like, To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that if this earthly house of this tabernacle decays and dissolves, we have a building not made with hands eternal in the heavens. As we read those, why, 
fear began to go. Faith began to grow. We got home, and he opened the door, and he went in. His wife was sitting there. He said, honey, he said, gosh, I hate you had to stay behind. I wish you could come with me. <laughs> That's the way to deal with fear. Look it right in the face. And then bring our faith to bear on it. In the light of what God has told us about our relationship to him, what happens then to this situation? Do I really need to fear it as I've been fearing it? The ability to do this has to do with that root of abiding in Christ, of seeking as David did for fellowship with the Lord continually. Otherwise, we won't be able to bring our faith to bear. Our faith will be so weak, when we do bring it to bear, it won't do us any good. And finally, go ahead then and follow up with specific prayer about the situation. Pray and see what God will do. Wait on Him. That's the way a Christian handles fear. And for a non-Christian, I can't offer you any real solution. I think that whatever fears you have, they're not as great as they should be. I think you should be so fearful that you would just sit at home and never venture out of the house if you understood the situation you're in. You're in a terrible, dangerous situation. And the way to handle it is to fear God, to turn to Him and to acknowledge Him to be who He is. Acknowledge your need of a Savior, that you're a sinner, Accept the claim of Christ. Examine those claims. We don't urge you to accept them and bind faith. There's evidence for the Christian faith. Examine the claims of Jesus Christ, who he was, the Son of God, what he did. He paid for your sins. What he offers you, free, full salvation, if you will surrender your life to him as your Lord. And if you will trust him as your Savior. Just put your faith in what he has done and cease to fear the wrath of God. If you will do that today, just kneel. Kneel when you get home and tell Jesus, Lord, I surrender to you and I put my faith in you. I want you to come into my life. And right now, I trust you to do that as you promised. And then come and let's talk. That's the way for you to start handling your fear and your situation.